You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 454, Projections. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we believe we are reviewing each and every episode and film of Star Trek, looking for the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein, and seeing if they withstand the test of time. Today's episode, Projections, the one where we ask ourselves if holograms dream of electric sheep. John will be back with trivia right after I tell all of you how we believe you can reach all of us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion with this week's existential trivia. It is existential and it is extant. And here we go, trivia for projections. We have a story written by Brandon Braga. Well, actually, he gets the story and the teleplay credit here. It is all his baby. And it's all because of one of the most well-known lines in modern philosophy, cogito ergo sum. Now, that was René Descartes in the middle of the 17th century stating, I think, therefore, I am. And it was the perfect launching point for Brannon to craft a story in which the EMH gets to question his entire reality. We'll come back to that, of course. It was directed by Jonathan Frakes, and you have to go way back to TNG's third season to remember Jonathan's directorial debut on Star Trek with the episode The Offspring. He stuck around in the director's chair for seven more there, then directed three on DS9, and this is the first of three for him on Voyager. And remember, there is a whole lot more to go when we get into later modern Trek with him. It is interesting to note the timing, though, on this episode. Uh, Keep in mind that TNG had been off the air for just one year and that the cast was about to make the jump to feature films After Generations, Jonathan was in the running to direct the next feature, First Contact. In this episode, this is one of the episodes that went under review to see if he had his chops to take on the movie. Oh, hey, uh, and here we are monkeying around again with the temporal mechanics thing. Uh, This episode, this is, yes, another one of those that was shot for season one, but held back until season two. We've talked about that the last few episodes, but here we are with one more. Let's talk about our guest stars. Well, we have a returning favorite from TNG to make a crossover appearance in this episode. It was Brannon who wanted... Jordy LaForge to confront the EMH in the simulation, but instead it was decided to bring back Reg Barclay, and that's who we've got. 
Returning to the role is Dwight Schultz. And we've talked before about Dwight's career in and out of Star Trek. You can go all the way back to Mission Log 164 to hear when we first met him in the TNG episode Hollow Pursuits. He made four more appearances on TNG, culminating in Genesis, which aired in March of 1994. Now, Keep in mind that Voyager was already in development at the time, and one of the actors considered to play the EMH Doctor was, indeed, Dwight Schultz. Uh, Now, the production knew that they wanted to bring him back, though, even if he didn't get that role, and here we are just a year later with a clever way to do it, and do not think for a moment that you have seen the last of Reg Markley on Voyager. Are you ready to go on a little head trip with us? I hope you packed sandwiches. Prologue. The doctor is activated in sickbay and, as he is wont to do, demands to know why. The computer informs him that a ship-wide red alert automatically initiated his program. The doctor tries to confirm as the computer explains that all personnel aboard Voyager, including the captain, are gone. Voyager is empty. Act 1. The computer updates the doctor on the current situation, and it's bad. Very bad. After triaging the current situation, the doctor manages to access Captain Janeway's bridge logs on the monitor station in his office. It appears that Voyager has been attacked, and most of the major systems are offline, forcing the captain to order all hands to abandon ship. After thoroughly confirming that he is indeed alone on the ship, The doctor believes his program has come to its logical end, and just as he is making his final medical log entry and is about to self-terminate his program, Balana pries her way into sickbay, nursing an injured shoulder. Two malfunctioning medical tricorders notwithstanding, the doctor manually inspects Balana's injuries. She informs him that two Kazon warships took Voyager by surprise, and their attack severely crippled the ship. The captain and Balana stayed behind to prevent a warp core breach, as the remainder of the crew escaped in life pods, however were captured via Kazon tractor beams. Balana also tells the doctor that she needs him to check the captain, who was trapped and injured on the bridge. Unbeknownst to the doctor, Balana and the captain had been updating the ship's hollow emitters so that the doctor would have greater access to the more critical areas on Voyager. After diverting power from life support and charging the hollow emitters, Balana transports the doctor to the bridge. Act 2. Making his way to an unconscious Captain Janeway, the doctor tries to assess her situation, but once again, his medical tricorder is malfunctioning. Fortunately, his hypospray rouses Janeway, and she is pleased to see him, meaning that the hollow emitters are working as planned. After a brief catch-up on the ship's and crew's status, Janeway needs the doctor to perform essentially a coronary bypass on the bridge's power relay. However, Neelix's desperate call for help over the comm system takes precedence and Janeway transports the doctor to the mess hall where he finds Neelix in culinary combat with what appears to be a Kazon soldier. After taking the Kazon by surprise, the combined efforts of the doctor, Neelix, and Neelix's best saute pan are able to subdue the Kazon and thwart the immediate danger. Neelix believes he was injured in the melee due to a large red stain on his shoulder which the doctor rules out as some kind of sauce. However, Neelix points out to the doctor that he is in fact bleeding, puzzling the doctor to no end because holographic programs aren't supposed to bleed. 
And after returning to sickbay, his once malfunctioning medical tricorder confirms that he is in fact exuding biological life signs. The doctor is further alarmed that the computer has, in every certainty, confirmed that there are no active holographic programs running on the ship, and that the chief medical officer on board Voyager is Dr. Louis Zimmerman, who appears on the doctor's medical files to look exactly like him. Just then, Captain Janeway, Balana, Neelix, and the Kazon prisoner arrive in sickbay. A bewildered doctor tries to explain what is happening, and Janeway orders to shut down all hollow emitters and systems throughout the ship, causing everyone to disappear except for the doctor. Act 3. Trying to make any kind of sense of what just happened, the doctor asks the ship's computer a series of questions which ultimately direct him to Computer Memory Block 47 Alpha, where the entire Voyager crew is stored, because they are just programs. Suddenly, a stranger appears before him and introduces himself as Reg Barkley, who tries to explain in every possible credible way that the doctor is in fact Louis Zimmerman. Reg is the doctor's lead assistant, who continues to explain that they are both currently on Jupiter Station, and due to a surge of kinoplasmic radiation, the doctor is currently trapped in his own fictional program of the USS Voyager, lost in the Delta Quadrant, and a narrative created specifically to study the long-term effects of deep space isolation. Barclay and the doctor are at an impasse with the credibility of what the doctor knows and what he's experiencing. The doctor believes that he is in fact Voyager's emergency medical hologram, but shouldn't feel the pain or discomfort indicative of being an actual life form, a fact that is impressed upon both he and Reg as they share facial slaps to prove their respective points. Reg believes that Zimmerman is suffering from HTDS, hollow transference dementia syndrome, due to the prolonged exposure of the kinoplasmic radiation surge of the past six hours. Yes, hours and not six months as the doctor believes he has been on Voyager and in the Delta Quadrant. After briefly leaving, Barkley returns from his control room and back to the holodeck to give Zimmerman the only two possible ways he can escape the simulation, either destroy Voyager to end the program, which would unlock the holodeck allowing him to leave, or die within an hour by kinoplasmic radiation poisoning, which is currently affecting the cellular stability of his brain. Act 4. The doctor is still unconvinced that what he has been told is true, that Barclay is who he claims to be, and that destroying Voyager is the only way to end the recursive holodeck program of which he is trapped inside. He needs more proof before deciding anything. Barclay resets the program to the doctor's first activation aboard Voyager, which appears to be accurate, right down to Tom Paris's annoying quirks. Well, Reg cops to that as being patterned after his cousin Frank. However, as convincing as all of this may be, Zimmerman knows that if the main holographic matrix is destroyed, who or whatever remains must be real, if Sherlock Holmes' theory holds true. Eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. After a brief yet charmingly nostalgic run-in with Captain Janeway and Bellana in engineering, at the moment before the caretaker whisks the crew away to the array's welcoming party, Zimmerman destroys the Hollow Matrix and is still active, is still alive. Confirming his suspicions, he asks the computer if there are any holographic programs currently running, to which the computer responds with a resounding negative. Then why is the holodeck still active? Where is the arch and the default holo grid? 
To compound the confusion even more, Barclay explains that ending a holodeck program within a holodeck doesn't satisfy the program's acquired ending, and thus the destruction of Voyager itself by breaching the warp core is the only way. Handing the Doctor a phaser, Reg nudges him one step closer to finishing the story. Suddenly, in the nick of time, Commander Chakotay bursts into engineering, yelling at the Doctor to stop and that Reg is lying. Act 5. With little time to spare, Chakotay tries to convince the Doctor that he is still on Voyager's holodeck, taking a holiday as suggested by Captain Janeway, and that a kinoplasmic radiation surge is currently the cause of a feedback loop that has trapped him within his own holographic simulation generated by the sum total of his codes, memories, and subroutines. He can see Chakotay, who is currently being projected into the holodeck program, which is Chakotay's only way to reach the Doctor, and explain to him that no matter how real it may seem, this is still just a holodeck illusion. Chakotay explains further that if the Doctor destroys the holodeck Voyager simulation, he is in fact terminating the feedback loop, which would destroy the Doctor's subroutine data. In other words, the Doctor would destroy himself. Barclay tries to convince the Doctor one last time to end the illusion and destroy Voyager. Cass appears before him, and not as the assistant that the EMH knows her to be, but as Zimmerman's actual wife, who pleads with him to destroy the warp core and end the simulation. Chakotay returns and tries to divorce the Doctor from the all-too-real temptations which are overwhelming him. As Chakotay pleads with the Doctor to hold on a little longer, Zimmerman collapses from the pain and Cass kisses him. As he professes his feelings for her, the Doctor finds himself in sickbay, being watched over by Kess, Harry Kim, and Tuvok, who reports to Chakotay that the Doctor is fine and functioning normally. As Kim and Tuvok leave, Kess presses the Doctor about the feelings he expressed towards her when he was recovering on the biobed, which strikes the Doctor as odd. And as she begins to act strangely aggressive, Barclay returns, encouraging the Doctor to destroy the warp core. The Doctor tries to escape sickbay, but is blocked by an armed Kazon, and even more terrifying, is forced to treat an injured patient who looks just like him, but speaks with Janeway's voice, who says, Try to calm down, Doctor. Everything's going to be fine. Suddenly, the Doctor finds himself on the real holodeck grid, and is greeted by the real Janeway and Chakotay, who inform him that the crisis is over. Later, in sickbay, the Doctor tells Kess what actually happened when he was trapped in his holodeck simulation. Kess asks him to keep their marriage a secret, especially from Neelix, who gets overly jealous of these matters. The Doctor wonders why he focused on the particular delusion which questioned his humanity and his purpose. Kess admits that she wonders and questions her existence as well, and probes the Doctor one last time if he is truly in fact certain of his purpose aboard Voyager. In other words... Is he only just the emergency medical hologram? The end. All right. Nicely done, Norman. If, in fact, that was the real Norman Lau reading that recap and not just the computer construct of Norman Lau doing a recap. But either way, either way, well, well done, I, I think, whichever one of you I mean, I it. feel that I understand my purpose for Mission Log, if, in fact, that I am a Mission Log co-host. But that remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, you know, we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So thoughts, observations here about uh, projections. What do we oh, think? Okay. I like the beginning of this episode when the computer is basically saying everything is offline, including sewage mm-hmm. and waste reclamation, which is strange because you never really hear about that, right? Yes. 
Yes, it's always the question, where is the bathroom on the Enterprise? Mm-hmm. The the one, you know, and like, <laughs> there have to be many, but we've never even seen yeah. one. I think the closest we ever got to it is, uh, uh, the earliest anyway, would be the sonic shower in the motion picture. So we know that there's something there. But yeah, I thought, like, of course, I want to know all the environmental and, you know, personal situations on the uh, on a on it's a like starship. the checklist let's These see uh, warp cores offline shields are offline it's like yeah yeah replicators offline yeah sewage mm-hmm. and water what sewage is offline what what no <laughs> <laughs> let's let's fix that first please yeah that, that was uh, i'm glad you noticed that i noticed that too now of course we've talked about the doctor having the ability to end his own program I did wonder, like, obviously you can't do it for dramatic purposes here, but is that really the best time to do it? I mean, if everyone is gone, to his knowledge, at that moment, you know, as the story unfolds to him, should he really just decide that he is no longer needed? Just like, uh, I'm gone, and if somebody needs to reactivate me, boom. Because the doctor is the one being on board that does not need to eat or use the uh, sewage reclamation, right. <laughs> you know, water reclamation or sewage systems. It seems like in an emergency, that would be the one thing you actually keep on the whole time. I mean, why not? So, it's kind of like yeah. deleting mm-hmm. files, but you really don't need to because you don't really have to save space. You can just leave them alone. Right. In case you need them yeah. later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I really love how improved the Elkars displays are getting over time in this series. And I really yes. like the yes. animation of like that double helix graphic that was on the mm-hmm. uh, on the doctor's board behind him when he's about to self terminate. Which again, why would you do that? So <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, because it's one of those things where we're in this transition period of you know end of TNG. It's been off for a year. DS Nine is uh, three seasons in, and. Voyager comes along with a lower budget, but the benefit of all the production knowledge that has come before it. And we saw these things happen where you go from the very analog TNG, where all those graphics are printed, you know, and and physically made, to then we start to get some live graphics on uh, DS9 in those, you know, very obviously CRT Mm -hmm. tubes (laughs) built into the set. And you have those here too, but like the quality of the graphics gets better over time. So yeah, good good to see little bits like that. We'll see, Bellana did say, uh, I had to crawl through 31 Jeffrey's tubes just to get here. Which I'm thinking, you know what, for Tuvok, he'd say if you're complaining about that, you're weak. Because they just said this is a day's exercise for him. Go through 50 of those and, you know, keep running. I wonder if she found any, like, space cups along the way, you know, hidden in Jeffrey's tubes. <laughs> right. <laughs> or some, you know, lost panting cadet. <laughs> like a skeleton there covered with cobwebs. Right. <laughs> right. Cobwebs exactly. in a sweatsuit. I yeah. like it that uh, the doctor... You know, he uses two medical holo- uh, two medical tricorders on Bellana. He's like, these aren't working. So he goes just back to regular, old-fashioned, you know, exploratory medicine by actually examining her, right? Yeah. Of course he would. Yeah, yeah. Good, yeah, yeah, good good point. Because, well, he, he's trained in every possible diagnostic mm-hmm. technique. So that's pretty great. You know... <laughs> I, I do know that, again, this is all, everything that happens is a construct of the story. So I get that. I, I get that. But introducing the idea of the hollow emitters and, and basically telling the doctor, like, yeah, we set up this thing that fundamentally changes how you can interact with the crew. 
but we decided not to tell you about it. <laughs> like, this is important, but you don't like, need you know, to know, right? But you yeah. didn't need to know. Yeah, yeah. Like, like that's very, very clearly something that uh, is meant to tip off the audience. Something is wrong, but at the same time, kind of cover its own tracks. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a really nice detail, and it was kind of like a throwaway line. But you know, before the doctor mm-hmm. is beamed off of the out of sick bay and onto the bridge. I like that he asked Bellana if there was a medical kit behind tactical. Oh, right. It just yeah. gives him kind of like the agency yeah. of, okay, if I'm going to do this, I better have the proper tools to be able to treat people to wherever, wherever I'm going on the ship. I just thought that was mm-hmm. neat. You know what? It didn't need to yeah. be there, but I liked that it was there. And uh, I had to, I don't know if you laughed, John, because I know you're a fan of Doctor Who. I'm a fan of Doctor Who. We have many listeners uh-huh. are fans of Doctor Who. And as soon as he's beamed onto the bridge, he said, well, it's bigger than I thought. Like, yeah. it's bigger on the inside, <laughs> right? Yeah. Bigger on the inside. Yeah, exactly. Like like it should be. I, speaking of when we get to the bridge, and that is a good point about the medical kit, because little details like that, well, like like mentioning the uh, water reclamation and sewage on board, little details that make it a more believable space. Like, yeah, they're going to have fire extinguishers. They're going to have a medical kit. They'll just have these things around where they need them. So it gives a bit of life and detail to the space. I also, I just, I always appreciate when you can do a good redress of an existing Mm -hmm. set. So Voyager looking like it's been through a lot and the monitors are kind of flickering and the lights are dim and, um, and even Janeway, I mean, looking just really beat up after that skirmish with the Kazon. Like, uh, all of that was played very convincingly. Yeah, very I mean, well. it's, it's pretty amazing like how like flickering lights, smoke, and some hanging debris, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. obviously some extreme lighting effects can really change like the whole atmosphere. But <laughs> as, yep. as serious as that scene was, I really did laugh yep. out loud when Janeway tried to explain like how to bypass the power conduit. And he's like, the doctor <laughs> says, is that like a coronary bypass? Because if so, then I'm your guy, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, well, doctor, a bypass is a right. bypass, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, heart or uh, or ship mm-hmm. systems. <laughs> I'm feeling you can do this. Uh, shout out to Jupiter Station. Uh, I like to hear references to that. It makes it kind of a very real and uh, an evolving living space in the Star Trek and universe. Even though, even though the scene played for comedy, of course, Kind of took me out mm-hmm. a little bit uh, when when Neelix was mm-hmm. fighting the Kazon with food. Uh, at the very yeah. end, when when Ethan barks out, it's like no one gets the best of me in my kitchen. Like the way that he uh-huh. barked it out, I'm like, <laughs> there is still darkness in there. You okay, know? I, I, I'm glad because that, that scene did take me out of it. And, and again, it's like we'll, we'll get to this at the end of the the show, kind of the replay value, knowing that everything is a construct. But that scene did mm-hmm. take me out of it. I'm glad that there's still that edge there a little bit that uh, that you picked up on. This is a minor thing, and I'm sure that a million people out there know the answer. But why is Dr. Lewis Zimmerman wearing gold in his uh, shirt in in his uh, mm-hmm. picture from the Elkar's display? Engineering? I, I just I would think that he would be in blue. That was kind of uh, a weird choice. I know they want to distinguish him from the EMH. That you would just think science is medical. He is a doctor, a medical doctor. He would be in blue. That's well, me. I mean, he's also yellow at the end of the episode in the bio bed where he's kind of like half burned. Oh, you know? right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so totally. maybe they're trying to make a correlation with engineer and hologram engineer. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's an engineering aspect to that, absolutely. Or maybe he's so good and so advanced, so smart that he can do both. He can just do all of the above. But I wonder if that's the thing that we will see in consistency coming back. Or that's not. now become you part know? of the home game. That's home game level. Mm-hmm. It is a total home game stuff. Yep. Speaking yep. of home game, here's your 47 reference for the episode as the Voyager crew is <laughs> stored in memory block. 47 alpha there it is of course it is of course it is and and by the way that memory block 47 you know i i i know that this is all about suspension and disbelief i know that it's all about letting the computer kind of run wild and see what we we get from it that is the whole point of the episode why would it have a fully realized character of Barclay in its storage? I mean, I get that he was part of the team, and I get that people leave their imprint on their work. Absolutely makes sense. I get that. But are, are there others in there, too? I, you know, I do, are they just uploaded characters who are also fighting for storage space in the computer could they just also show up one day you know there's a whole who knows how many people worked on the emh could be dozens and uh they could all just be hanging out ready for their opportunity to shine in uh in the emh well, is what happens we don't give them the ability to self-terminate so they're just yeah hang right out exactly. <laughs> as files are want to do Either the script was inconsistent or Dwight was inconsistent or maybe people just didn't care enough to edit this. But either Reg is correct saying the Voyager or Voyager because he says it both ways and it seems a little grating after repeat viewings of which we do when we review our episodes. Yeah, so, okay, that really stood out to me as well. And I know it shouldn't be a huge deal, but it is a consistency thing. And look, I always wonder from series to series, anyway, people talk about going back to the Defiant, not Defiant. Kirk talks about going back to the Enterprise, not Enterprise. Mm -hmm. Yet on Enterprise, which we haven't gotten to, I just broke the timeline. Oh, negative 10 points for me. They always talk about Enterprise. That, that they are flying through space on Enterprise. So with Voyager, I wonder if there's a decision made early on to say we refer to this as Voyager, not the Voyager. And I don't know if there is some sort of consistent rule when it comes to, say, modern-day naval vessels that you would refer to one as one or the other. I don't well, know. Uh, just to reference really quickly, when Chekhov and Uhura are observing – you know, the Enterprise naval carrier, you know, in 1986 mm-hmm. and the voyage home, Chekhov says, and sir, it is the Enterprise. That's what he says. Right? So I don't yeah. know. I mean, yeah, it's just yeah, he sure does. You know, potato, potato kind of yeah. thing. Maybe so, maybe so. If anybody out there can shed any light on it, we would appreciate it. I do love uh, Hologram Barkley saying, well, I'm just not an alien, because to me, that sounds like something an alien. I'm not would guilty. Say. Yeah, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> I do love how now the term banjo man is canonized on screen. That that is now part of the vernacular. He will always and forever be banjo man. That it is canon. Cool. It is um, handheld. Yeah, in quotes, canon. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And, and I. Oh man, I love the disappointment in the line that the EMH has. Then it's true. 
I am a real person. Oh, totally the opposite of the opposite of Pinocchio. You know, it's the opposite of what Data wants. There is this this forlorn look on his face that he's a real person when he is convinced. John, is he projecting? Oh, I don't want to jump my own timeline. <gasps> what? Is he projecting? Uh oh. <laughs> Kinoplasmic radiation. So I looked this up. Uh, Mm -hmm. referencing Memory Alpha online. And Memory Alpha describes kinoplasmic radiation as radiation that adversely affects computer systems. That's what I got. Hey, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Good. HTDS, hollow transference dementia syndrome. Mm. As far as I know, this is the first time that we've heard this referenced in Star Trek. And I, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think and you're right. Would mm-hmm. what Nog was suffering in It's Only a Paper Moon be classified as hollow transference dimension syndrome? Because he wanted to stay in the holodeck because his holodeck reality, as as far as he was concerned, was better than his current reality. Well, for that matter, our very own Lieutenant Reg Barclay, you know, I don't think I, I can't remember if uh, in Hollow Pursuits or at any point after that, we ever put a name on that, on what he was going through, sort of losing himself in the fantasy of the holodeck. But I, I do like this. Uh, HTDS is now the, the standardized thing. So I have a huge point of contention, bone to pick, whatever you want to call it, whatever euphemism with Brannon writing the script. And it really, really, really upsets me that he missed this huge opportunity to describe Tom Paris's doppelganger that Zimmerman, that Barkley based him on. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From his cousin, Nicholas. It should have been Nick. Of course. Oh. Instead of Frank. Yeah. Frank's funny, whatever. But if if he said Nick... The fans, I think, would have that, lost their minds. That would have been on the nose, and, and in a yeah, good way. Exactly. Yeah. Um, speaking of losing one's mind, the whole Kess mm-hmm. Zimmerman, I'm your wife, twist. That, that was well yeah. played. Yeah. And, John, yeah. so I know that you've always brought this up, and I know you bring it up for humorous bits. I know you bring it up for you know, a mm-hmm. very thoughtful introspection about the doctor and what he's capable of, how he's an extension of the computer system and the systems aboard Voyager. Mm-hmm. So why would he need a day off? Thank you. Thank a day you. off of what? I, I, like, I, <laughs> I, I, right? Exactly. exactly. Because for that matter, look, the computer could make four or five of him. And, you know, you just keep duplicating the program, just like you do a file on your desktop. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not totally convinced that he needs a day off. And if he does, why would he want to go to the holodeck? I, you know, it's very, very strange. strange. So if you're a fan of American Werewolf in London, as I am, and I'm sure that yes. you are, mm-hmm. there are scenes within yep. scenes within scenes within dream sequences within dream sequences. And I really was caught off guard by this episode at the second to last dream sequence, not being the truly realized reality that he returned to. Were you? Was anyone else? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I, I thought that very well done in this, you know. And I will say that uh, when we do have the reveal that we are still in a dream sequence, the uh, the nice use of the fisheye lens, and I love the captain's voice coming out of the EMH's face, that, that effect was a little weird, but it, it still worked. I mean, it just drove home the insanity of what was going on. And, and I do have to say there's something like it, it was a weird moment of twisted 
but also sweet and comforting <laughs> when uh, this look on the doctor's face when his arm disappears through the sick bay door when he tries to go beyond the bounds of the hollow projector like it, it was great you just go like wow that's just a creepy weird thing to have your arm disappear but for him it's like oh the comfort of being at home right in his own reality. There's like a, a strange play here on the euphemism, know your role. You know, he knows the boundaries of where he's mm. comfortable. And once he's mm-hmm. outside those boundaries, you know, it kind of like, it's like when Kess asks him at the end of this episode, are you sure about that? Are you sure about your role here on Voyager? And it's, it's very much like it leaves the question, like the top spinning at the end of inception. Like, yeah. are we in the reality that we believe that we're in or are we not? Is your head spinning like you got clocked on Maki Day yet? If so, I think the episode is working. We'll get right back to projections, but first a word from this week's sponsor, who happens to be you. All of you who have been supporting us on Patreon over the years, or maybe you're brand new to Patreon, patreon.com slash mission log, and maybe you've dug around and you found our early releases of the unedited, unexpurgated mission log episodes. Maybe you're in it for the swag, the exclusive stickers and coffee mugs and t-shirts and other things you can get there. Or maybe, just maybe, you're in it for the Discord. Because Norman, if I'm right, the conversation really continues on the Mission Log Discord. Or maybe you're in it to win it. And by winning it, I mean being on the Discord with us. And you're right, John. The conversation that we have in this community that we've been building for almost a year now, I think we're coming up on our anniversary of when we actually launched Discord. What we have been able to to grow and to foster and to encourage is this wonderful collective of people that just love being there, talking about Star Trek and so many other science fiction or fantasy or fandom topics and finding these wonderful relationships, these friendships that have extended within the Discord community and without, especially being able to meet each other in person at conventions or just as friends. Something that started off as something that we wanted just to have uh, as an outlet for people during COVID has turned into so much more than we could even possibly have realized. Yeah, I love checking in on uh, not only the conversations that we're having. It's about Star Trek. It's about our other fandoms. It's about food and travel and getting together and uh, just any topic under the sun in this really great, respectful, supportive environment. And of course, that doesn't even scratch the surface when we get into our live chats and events online like Mission Log After Dark or Hailing Frequencies Open, where you join us live video, audio, and And uh, sure, it's topical, but sometimes it's just a lot of fun. Well, okay, every time it's a lot of fun, too. So join us there at patreon.com slash mission log. That is your key to entry to get to the mission log discord. So if you're trying to figure out why is everybody talking about discord, how do I get to discord? Well, one stop first, patreon.com slash mission log, and then you will be invited to our discord and we will see you there. Hey, Norman, I have a really simple question to kick off the discussion today. Um, how, sure. how do you know what you know? Uh, because I know it, <laughs> fair, I guess. Fair enough. I mean, uh, did somebody show up and say, like, oh, no, no, well, trust me, I'm not an alien. But here, here's your reality. I'm just going to tell you what your reality is. 
I mean, I did trust the alien, so... Okay, all right. Well, well, see, Maybe the skews at everything. So the yeah. alien said that they were an alien. They just... Right, yeah, I, I believed and it. And you believed it. Okay, good, good. Sure. All right, so you, mm-hmm. you, know, <laughs> you, you know what you know because you, were, you believe what you were told. Uh, so that, that's good. That's one way to go through life, uh, to, sure. just, uh, to just believe it, you know. You know, this episode is so interesting on a multitude of levels because you have the, the mystery of what is actually going on with the doctor. Is this a technology problem to solve? Is this something else going on? Which reality is the real reality? But at its heart, what I think is so cool, it's like this this baby step introduction into the very concept of epistemology. How do we know the things that we know? I don't care what the belief is. I don't care what that, that knowledge is, but how do you know that it's true? How did you come by that information and being convinced that that information was true? And I love seeing the doctor, you know, he obviously he knows what he knows from the start, which is a, he is an EMH on uh, the Voyager or on Voyager, trapped. Oh, uh, that sounds so <laughs> weird. I know. Trapped somewhere out in the Delta Quadrant. But then what's interesting is when he's presented with new information, how does he test the validity of the new information that he's getting? And to me, that's the fun part about watching this episode because he has a really smart opponent because the opponent is him. The opponent Mm -hmm. is Voyager's computer talking back to him as a holographic character with all the knowledge and information and uh, environmental understanding that he already has. So, of course, when he asks Barclay, or the projection of Barclay, essentially, you know, how do I know you're not an alien? How do I know that this or that and the other thing isn't happening? And Barclay just says, well, because I'm not. And it's like, well, at at a certain point, how much more test of that information can you do? And the doctor does what he thinks he should do, pick up a tricorder, scan the room. Oh, wait, a few meters beyond this, we're out of the holodeck. That's where we are. But how do you then trust the tools that you're using to scan to make sure that that information is correct? It's this wonderful way to say to the audience, like, Okay, you can take some things for granted, but how then do you uh, have confidence in the tools that you use to even get you to that point? I I think it's just great. I I think that that kind of thing to be able to do in an entertaining TV show for 48 minutes is very cool. I love that you bring up the issue with the tricorders because that was something that was made very specific as an issue with the doctor at the very beginning especially with Bolana. yeah because the tricorder is the highest form of technological input output that they have in order to assess a situation immediately in terms of the data that it receives and digests but what if you don't have that what if you can't trust that then the doctor goes to examining in the old-fashioned way, using his senses, using his tactile information, making sure that the old methods of medicine still don't, they don't betray him the way that the tricorders have. And it's, it gets to the point where all of the technological information that are, that is supposed to inform him of a certain truth in his narrative, Mm -hmm. all give him false positives, right? So what do you believe? (laughs) How do you believe it in the, in the, uh, in the era of all of this data that is at the highest level of technological reception is pointing in the other direction. Well, and that's what's so fun about it is because here's the doctor, here's the EMH, who let's just say those are the two tools at his disposal. The two tools are the tricorder 
and also his ability to see a patient, talk to a patient, examine whatever is happening with that patient. You know, like the uh, the uh, false positive blood stain on Neelix, which turns out to be tomato sauce. But then he, uh, the EMH himself is bleeding, you know. So he has these, these two possible ways of exploring his environment. But both of those now he doesn't trust because he can't. And it really opens up this sort of, well, you know, look, it's a mental exercise, I think, especially since the movie The Matrix came out, which uh, posed this very provocative idea to a mass audience, which is, you know, what if we're all in a simulation? And the problem posed by an episode like this is, how would you know? How would you know you're actually in a simulation because your tests are going to be inadequate? And that really is the the problem with that line of thinking, is that the very proposal lacks evidence or a way to actually test it. So at that point, it's just academic. Like It's an interesting mental exercise. It's an interesting philosophical game to play with yourself. But there's really no way to actually examine that proposal. And I, and I love it even in the episode, um, the doctor is saying to uh, Barclay, you know, but I have memories. It's all part of the simulation. Right. <laughs> right? right. Because then it's one of those things. It's like talking to somebody who has deeply held conspiratorial beliefs. It's like any evidence against the conspiracy is then evidence for the conspiracy. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, well, that that thing was just meant to throw you off. So, yeah, literally, there's no way to get out of that line of thinking. It's like the Russian doll, right? You know, you uh, the Russian doll that's within the Russian doll, within the Russian doll, within the Russian doll. You open one up, and there's another one, but smaller. Then you open up another one, but there's another one that's smaller. Right, Each one of those yeah. things, right? They all host the doctors, all of the doctors' data. So everything is feeding on itself to convince itself that there is no other logical alternative but the information that is before you with maybe one possible slight deviation from the course which allows them to think just enough to be able to question something which also has a defense mechanism already built in because yeah. he's defending the logic that is being questioned so right 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 exactly but uh, above all of this yeah. i think there's a larger, I think a larger, more philosophical component to it. And I think that's that's part of the title. We haven't mm. done the title game. No, we haven't. We haven't in a while. In a long time. Yeah. So when I looked at, there are a lot of one-word titles in this season. That, so that, far, that is a is Brandon nice. thing, for sure. For <laughs> sure. The title's projections. Let's think about the usage of the word projections mm. as applied to this episode. So I, I don't know why I went down this particular line of, of reasoning. But the title represents projections from a psychological standpoint, in my opinion. Mm. The, the doctor is, is replicated in holographic form, the doctor being Louis Zimmerman. Yeah. But his holographic ego is also being represented in a form of projection within itself, with inside this holographic construct that it's created right, because right. of this kinoplasmic radiation. So first and foremost, I want to create a disclaimer because I know that we get deep into this. Yeah. John, neither you or I, as far as I know, we are, no, we are not practicing psychologists, no. nor do we have degrees to that fact. No, 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 no. No. So we're just looking at this as a way of looking at a possible direction of what's happening with the doctor's character. So I looked at 
psychologytoday.com and wanted to understand more about projection mm-hmm. as it applies to the title. Mm-hmm. Projection is unconscious discomfort that can lead people to attribute unacceptable feelings or impulses to someone else to avoid confronting them. Mm. Projection also allows the difficult trait to be addressed without the individual fully recognizing it in themselves. Mm. So based on this definition, as it applies to this episode, I see this interpretation as the doctor projecting his desire to be human or to be actually like Zimmerman. Ooh. And you said earlier in observations, okay. when he made that realization that he is human, mm-hmm. there, was, there was despair yeah. in his voice. Yeah. But why? If he's actually trying to do this. Yeah. Well, you know what? Is he, though, or is it... Um, I'll sort of butcher a, a Carl Sagan quote here, is that the EMH is sort of persisting in the comfortable delusion rather than what at this point would be an earth-shaking reality, if that were the reality. You you know, uh, he's presented with this idea that he may actually be this human, but if the delusion is more comfortable, remember the comfort that he sees in his arm disappearing out of that room. Oh, okay, Mm -hmm. I know my purpose. I know my space here. Uh, that that actually is very much in line with with uh, a note that I took about this episode overall, which is that you know the the EMH here in this episode has this very personal and philosophical journey, and it it's important because you know almost from the beginning of the series, uh, with some coaxing from Kess to be sure. The crew have accepted and adopted the EMH as part of their team. You know, he is a being of some sort who should be afforded autonomy and respect. The captain does that. That's uh, an important example that gets set for the rest of the crew. Some people had more trouble with it than others, but but whatever. You know, we're we're seventeen episodes in, and that that's where we are. The person who doesn't always see that and who doesn't always know what to do with it is the doctor himself. Mm-hmm. And so think about it. We, we open the show with him about to shut himself down. I mean, in the first act, because he doesn't think that he is of use to anyone and that that is his only function is just mm-hmm. being of use. Right. So the, the course of this episode, I love that it shows him going, uh, you know, through moments of realization about himself. But, but again, I come back to that last scene, testing the boundary. That is something he is doing for nobody but himself. And I, I think that's why it's kind of lovely to see that, even though it would be weird. It would be terrifying for one of us as a human being to see your arm disappear out of, out a door. But, but for him, that is the comfort of then where he is again. Well, I mean, looking at it in, at, at, this, at this stage of the game in terms of his, his diagnostic subroutine, mm-hmm. what if what was happening to him after this kinoplasmic radiation surge was a subroutine that actually activated a subconscious within him? Ooh. Is he capable? Because we are now projecting. Mm-hmm. We as the audience are projecting that the doctor is in of himself able to cognitively understand his own existence. That's the credibility that we're giving him throughout the course of these episodes, how he's building that autonomy and agency of himself. Well, we are projecting a very human, we are projecting, uh, a very human yeah. attribute 
on exactly on technology. We, we uh, in mission log tradition, we uh, maybe shouldn't call it artificial intelligence, but manufactured intelligence. It, it is intelligence nonetheless. So the big question is: yeah. Is he capable at this stage of the accident, post accident? Is he capable of projecting his subconscious? So that there are certain things even beyond his understanding that are being projected as the doctor would project himself as a hologram. So Mm. in these two cases, Mm -hmm. Kess says to him at the end, believe in yourself. You're not a program. You're a real flesh and blood human being. (laughs) And you're my husband. I don't want to lose you. This is at the very end when he's trying to resolve who he is. This is the doctor projecting his feelings for Kess, even though he doesn't understand that he has feelings for Kess in that way. Right. 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 Oh, okay. The EMH being a part of Voyager's computer, Voyager's computer has essentially seen and heard and recorded all of his interactions with Kess through mm-hmm. the doctor's eyes. Exactly. You know, and yeah. that goes into the, the definition earlier of when I said projection allows the difficult trait to be addressed without the individual <laughs> fully recognizing in themselves. Yep. This yeah. is the doctor and Kess. But also, yeah. there is more of the human conundrum that is that the doctor is projecting about his desire to be real. And this is when Barclay says, Lewis, when he is trying to convince the doctor that he's Lewis Zimmerman. Yeah. He says, Lewis, how would you rather think of yourself as a real person with a real life, with a family that loves you, or as some hologram that exists in a sick bay on a starship lost deep in space? I, I've said, I wrote down the same line because the, the thing that is in that line, the word hologram is dripping with disdain. So mm-hmm. here's Voyager's computer, smart enough to project the tender feelings, the romantic feelings that he might have for Kess, however we want to define those. I mean, it, it, it's something that is a, a bond, right? All the way up to this, like, self-loathing that exists somewhere in the back of that program, which could be residual from just being a creation of Lewis Zimmerman. If uh, the EMH is purely seen by Zimmerman as a creation, as a piece of technology, then I'm sure that the real Lewis Zimmerman would see him as something lesser than, you know, he might be an achievement, but he's not the real deal. He's not the real flesh and blood. So I love how you, how you describe that word when the way that Barclay says it, Mm -hmm. you know, when he says hologram with disdain is Barclay then the subconscious projection of the doctor's own defense mechanism to convince him that he is this and not that. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's literally sort of like the devil on one shoulder, the angel on the other shoulder. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, okay. I I want to take this train of thought that you have about projections and and how this means. I'm going to take it in a very slightly different direction because, yeah, you have a projection of Voyager's computer projecting its own existential crisis on the characters that it created in the hollow simulation. Because, again, it's very hard to draw a very distinct line between the EMH and Voyager's computer itself. I know that we can sort of think of it as a program, as an application that runs, but that application and the way Voyager's computer is working 24-7 
seems like there's also a lot of gray area in between. So, so at the end of the day, is this Voyager's computer daydreaming? I mean, it, it, it is the thing that produces the wow. EMH, and now it has a glitch. Wow, that concept is so big. Yeah. <laughs> it's so big. So, so we get, okay, so you have the EMH, and you have Barclay, and you have the other hollow projections of the crew. It's the computer having a conversation with itself. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I know that, and, and John, you've been doing this consistently, so I know that you have a very specific track of thought mm-hmm. when it comes to the computer and the doctor as a representation of the computer's core memory mm-hmm. in, in, the form of a, in the form of the EMH. So, yeah, are we, are we to believe, uh, based on your logic, that the computer of the, of Vo- of the Voyager, <laughs> of Voyager itself is what is actually projecting what it knows of the doctor as something that the Voyager also desires as the computer. I mean, look, go back to the, was it in the last season of TNG? You had the enterprise computer give birth for lack of a better description to a being, a being that the enterprise crew lets go out into the galaxy because it's not theirs to keep, but it is an expression of the computer's intelligence being creative and perpetuating itself. So who's to say that another computer built by the same technicians, the same uh, shipyard somewhere, now using some new and interesting uh, bio-neural gel packs? Yeah, that's it, BNGPs. Mm-hmm. Well done. Yeah, thank you. Um, I Isn't then the next stage in a highly intelligent computer uh, able to express those properties? Somehow nobody involved in this episode saw the potential for a sitcom spin-off called I Married an Acampa. Well, this has been a fabulous conversation. If, in fact, John, this conversation took place at all, because I'm just projecting that this conversation about projections happened. Yeah, I'm not convinced that it did. I I think this entire thing is happening in my mind, and um, yeah. That's, that's it. Okay, but what what would it take for me to convince you that this conversation <laughs> took place? I mean, I can tell you that the conversation took place. Mm, if I don't know if I believe you. All right. Yeah. So yeah. here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're okay. going to do to satisfy the the projection of this at the very end of this episode. We're going to theorize or project to the audience that's listening to us right now, if in fact they exist, what we do here on Mission Log, and that is... Let's take a look at if this episode, if it actually happened, or if the actual episode of the episode that we're talking about actually happened, holds mm, up. That's the one. And yeah. if we have found any morals or meanings and messages contained therein, contained therein in the episode that may have actually happened. <laughs> yes, yes, all of the above. Okay, so look, I, I'm going to do something that I rarely ever do, which is uh, I wrote all these notes um, about how I felt about the episode holding up. And I'm pretty much going to ignore those. Yes. Because, yeah, yeah. Because very often what I'll do is I'll watch an episode for the first time and just get my initial thoughts down. 
right? And then usually I, the, those kind of stay true to my final assessment. But what just happened? We did the thing that I love the most, which is we got to have a conversation and dive into what excited us about this episode, what the thoughts were that it dragged up, and it it changed my estimation of this episode. And it's not to say that I didn't like this episode before. I just think that when I took my initial notes, I felt a little a little ho-hum about it. I mean, I because I, I'm watching it initially from, uh, okay, does do the technical aspects hold up? And they're okay. There are places that the episode shows its age. Some of the effects are not always great, and certainly in the uh, uh, streaming quality, uh, not always great, but... You know, you, you kind of get what you can. And then you have an episode that is based around a twist. And whenever you watch an episode that it, that features a big plot twist in it, you then kind of ask yourself, okay, well, does it hold up to repeated viewings? Am I just sort of watching watching it and playing the home game? Like, oh, okay, I know what this clue is about now. So that's just getting me from point A to point B. And those were the things that were going in my head. It was like, oh, okay, did I know that it was a construct from the moment that the EMH discovered that his tricorders weren't working or the moment that Bolana told him about the hollow emitters and how that was just a brand new thing that he didn't know about yet. Or was it Neelix fighting the Kazon soldier? You know, I, I didn't like that scene as much. It played a bit too much for comedy for me. But these are all tip-offs to tell the audience that what's happening isn't really real. And those are much more apparent when you go back and rewatch it. But the more we talked about it, the more I thought this is one of those episodes where it really isn't about decoding the the clues that are left for you along the way. It really isn't about just getting to the twist. What it's about is the character journey. And so much here is revealed about the Doctor and, well, Voyager's computer, <laughs> of which he is a part, having a conversation with itself about the ideas of identity and existentialism. That, to me, elevates this episode far beyond anything that might be a shortcoming in either its story structure or any technical shortcomings, since we're looking at something that's nearly 30 years old, you know? So what we end up with is this story that truly appreciates the, the the very unique talent that Bob Picardo has. Mm -hmm. This one was written, like I said, in the trivia for the first season, and I can only imagine how this would have been taken. Maybe if we'd hit it way earlier. What if this was right in the middle of the first season? You'd go, whoa, wow, we're already you know starting this soon with this deep thought episode about this fascinating character. And then look, you've got Jonathan Frakes' talent on display here as a director. He doesn't have to do too much, too crazy, but what he does, I think he accomplishes very well. I, I just have to sum it up by saying this is better after a second and third viewing, and particularly better after having a conversation like we get to do here, that I don't know if I can say that this is going to be among the best episodes of Voyager that I will have watched when we are through this journey. I don't know if I'm going to be able to say that this is one of the best episodes featuring the Doctor when we get through the rest of our journey. But right now, it's definitely up there for me because the, the strength of the idea at its core is so solid. 
but then to see that performed in emotional ways through Bob, uh, certainly through Dwight Schultz acting as that uh, that antagonistic voice toward him is fascinating. It's a great episode. And, and I think it does actually hold up better second or third time around than even on your first watch. How about you? I mean, I really love this episode from the start probably after my first viewing and it just got better over time as we were you know as we do here on mission log as we take a look at it for all the different layers that it has looking for you know all of these different you know observations and discussion points etc and i'm going to echo a lot of what you said about you know having bob picardo in there working you know with dwight schultz and then having the supporting cast or actually the main cast support that story was just really marvelous to watch but i really do believe that this was about freaks taking a script and understanding the era of Star Trek that he was in and was a part of and mm. really being able to push a certain visual envelope where, say, other veteran Star Trek directors, say, Wienrich Kolbe or Mike Vehar mm. or David Livingstone may have mm-hmm. not have pushed it as far as Jonathan Frakes did. And maybe it's just because his instincts as a director or his understanding of the material or basically maybe because he was trying to create that episode resume for First Contact, where he was <laughs> right. creating something a little yeah. bit more dramatic than it should have been. And the Neelix scene aside, because we know that it was kind of played for levity. But the only thing that yeah. I just don't buy, and, mm. and I wouldn't have bought in 1995 when I was a far more cynical 20-something, <laughs> as opposed to the less cynical 50-something I am now. <laughs> right. right. But I just don't buy any of like these high-risk episodes where the, the crisis, the existential threat, is destroying the ship itself. Because no ship, no story, no series, right? Uh, right, right, right. Yeah. So yeah. that's something that just I'm just like, okay, I have to put that aside. I have to check myself and, and watch this episode for the reasons why you said, John, uh, are worth watching it for. And that's the story. That's the, the mm-hmm. development, the evolution of the character. The central theme of the Doctor pres- projecting his subconscious desires is amazing when you really take yeah. a look at it. Think yeah. about like what he's doing for a second. How it applies to, say, other stories of very similar degrees, like Blade Runner, or, as you mentioned earlier, Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream mm-hmm. of Electric Sheep? Mm-hmm. And how that applies to the way that that, that material, that, that wonderful classic science fiction material, has been used to um, inform episodes like Measure of a Man in The Next Generation, where data is being, or being on trial, put on trial for being sentient or not. And in this case, like, basically it's the proving ground for the doctor as a hologram. Is he projecting an ego? Is he capable of doing that? And what is the narrative behind that? And why is it being, you know, why is it important for us to see at this time? And it makes more sense now when you when you have said um, in trivia and then just in your response here that this mm-hmm. was supposed to have been a holdover before season two. That makes more sense uh, after uh, a few episodes, um, you know, when the Doctor explored the nature of his existence in Heroes and Demons and how that yeah. affected him. So think about it in terms of, you know, the Doctor asking this basic existential question, who am I? And yeah. It just blows my mind that you have actually added one more component to not just the doctor's understanding of that or questioning himself, but the Voyager computer actually 
being the projection of the doctor questioning himself. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. right. Uh, let's see where we land on some morals, meanings, messages here. We, we, we have this philosophical uh, conundrum for the doctor, for this manufactured intelligence to crunch over for a while for, for our entertainment and uh, our enjoyment. But are there messages here? Well, I really have to hand it to Brandon here with some just really on-the-nose lines. Uh, there's this great moment that Chakotay comes into the scene, and he tells the doctor, this isn't about what you want. This is about what you are. Just because you're made of light and energy doesn't mean that you're less real than someone made of flesh and blood. It doesn't matter what you're made of. What matters is who you are. And look, it, it's so bonk-bonk on the head <laughs> to use a classic Mission Log reference. But I'm telling you right now that that is what I am here for. You know, think back to those days of TOS when, when it was radical to see a character like Spock on TV telling a black woman who is an equal part of that bridge crew that there is no one better equipped to do her job than her. And, and that's what Star Trek telling the audience that that what matters is who you are and 30 years after tos we see it updated here because sometimes it needs reinforcement and we all need to hear it from time to time and i i love the simplicity the directness of chakotay putting those thoughts into the emh's head and i just think it's it's lovely but here's really to me, the, the other most important lesson from this episode, and it, and it is more philosophical. So I mentioned Descartes at the top of the show, arriving at the conclusion, I think, therefore I am. But I want to drop another line here that preceded it in Descartes' writings. And I, I won't do the Latin. Oh, <laughs> I know, I know. Right. But what he said, at last... I will devote myself sincerely and without reservation to the general demolition of my opinions. I love that line. Because while Descartes and I may part ways with some of our beliefs, some of our thoughts, we are 100% in line. I can't help but be in awe of the simple beauty of that idea. The idea that if we're being honest then we have a philosophical imperative to pick apart, analyze, and scrutinize the very foundations of what we believe about ourselves and the world around us, the very nature of our reality. It's only when you strip away everything, including the most sacred of beliefs, that you can start to build a new foundation on what is true. So I love seeing the doctor work through that. Our situation as non-holographic beings might be a little bit different, but the philosophy, the, the imperative, the impetus should all stay exactly to that theme. What about you, Norman? So John and I, I think we're, we're going to be on the same page here, but where you bring in literature and philosophy, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, in ancient texts, I'm, gonna, I'm going to supplement that with pop culture. <laughs> uh, perfect perfect hey it all blends together man so the moral of the story that i came away with and you out there may be familiar with this moral is there is no spoon okay so <laughs> I, just, I just see what you did there if you're a fan of the uh, matrix you may know that if not i'm going to explain a little bit of what that means in terms of what i feel is relative to this episode i mean all kidding aside we are in deep 
into deep existentialist theory here in this episode. And because of this, I have to reference one of my all-time favorite scenes from The Matrix when Morpheus is trying to explain to Mr. Anderson, pre-Neo, that reality is thus. And I quote, What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. Now, doubling down on this line of reasoning, what if we replaced Neo with the doctor and replaced Morpheus with Barkley when Barkley is asking the doctor, have you ever had a dream doctor that you were sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world. And this, yes. in my opinion, is at the core of what this episode is about. What is the tangible proof that defines reality? And if, if you can actually provide the most incontrovertible proof that reality does in fact exist, is that enough to end the inescapable existential crisis that many out there face in a world that only leaves us with more questions than answers. Cass is pitch perfect in this regard at the end when she says, well, sometimes I ask those kind of questions. Who am I? What am I doing here? What's my purpose in life? Doesn't everybody? And I think this is at the heart and the moral of this episode. And perhaps that is the point to all of this just to be open-minded and accepting enough to hear the possible answers to what may very well be unanswerable questions. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Elogium. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky. Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. By the way, if you pack sandwiches, you should probably double-check them, they may not actually exist. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. At the Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done.